Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, just want to issue a quick reminder before we get started. This program, this podcast has its own official app. It's the Other People app. It's free. It's available for your iPhone, your iPad, your Android device. Go find it. Other People with Brad Listy app. It's very easy to get a hold of. It's the best way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. It's very user-friendly. You go get the app at the app store of your choice. It's free. You download it, you get it on your device, and when you do that, the most recent 50 episodes will be there waiting for you free of charge. The most recent 50, free, waiting for you. And then, if you want to get access to everything, more than 400 episodes and counting, you can sign up for a premium subscription right there in the app. It costs 75 cents a month. 75 cents a month gets you access to everything. Every single episode of this show, available at your fingertips anywhere you go. That rhymed. You can hear hundreds of conversations with today's leading authors, screenwriters, editors. I've even interviewed some agents. You can hear me talk to George Saunders, Cheryl Strayed, Tom Parada, Jonathan Lethem, Roxane Gay, Sheila Hetty, Tao Lin, Susan Orlean, Edwidge Dantica, Frederick Barthelme, Daniel Handler, Austin Cleon, Amy Bender, Claire Bay Watkins, Lauren Groff, Hilton Owls. The list goes on. The Other People app. Go get it. It's free. Sign up for premium. That's almost free. All right, let's get started with the show. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, 
Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is ever so slowly disintegrating. This is created in a small, filthy room. How's it going out there? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. My guest today is a very special guest, and she is special because she is a good friend of mine, and uh, she also happens to be my writing partner in film and television uh, pursuits, which is something I haven't really talked about much uh, at all on this program, and you're going to hear more about it uh, momentarily. I am referring, of course, to Melissa Broder. Many of you are familiar with her work. She is a poet. She has published three collections of poetry to date, and now uh, has a new one, a new poetry collection coming out later this year from Tin House called Last Sext. So uh, in addition to that, and more immediately, Melissa is now an essayist. Her debut essay collection is called So Sad Today, and it is available from Grand Central Publishing uh, right now. The official pub date, March 15th, 2016. Very exciting. Uh, so Sad Today is an outgrowth of Melissa's hugely popular and uh, influential Twitter feed, the handle of which is at So Sad Today. That account, uh, I believe, has more than 300,000 followers. Last I checked, it is a beast, and it's one of the best things on Twitter. So uh, a little bit of a brief history. I don't want to be redundant because Melissa and I are going to be talking about this uh, in the interview, but she and I have known each other for several years. We started working together uh, on screenwriting stuff uh, two years ago, not long after she moved out to L.A., and uh, suffice it to say, it's been a lot of fun, and it's been great to get to know her better. She's one of my closest pals here in town, and I'm just thrilled for her. Uh, this is her year. She's having a lot of success. It's very well-deserved, and uh, she has a lot of talent, and she works very hard. Don't let her tell you otherwise. I've seen it firsthand. Uh, I have been the beneficiary of it, and uh, I, I guess we have uh, what I would call uh, an unlikely creative chemistry. Or maybe all creative chemistry is unlikely. Somehow it works. I don't know if either of us are entirely sure why or if one can ever be sure you know, about such a thing. I do know this. Uh, when you spend time working in collaboration with somebody here in Hollywood and you're running around town together taking dozens and dozens of meetings because that's what you do in Los Angeles when you're uh, trying to write for film and television. You take a lot of meetings endlessly. And uh, that process, I think, has a bonding effect. I feel like we've been in the trenches together for the past couple of years in places like Burbank and uh, Studio City. It's been a lot of fun. So, uh, Melissa Broder and her new essay collection, So Sad Today, in just a moment. Before we get there, uh, I have a special guest. This is an exciting show today. Uh, Heidi Pittler, who has guested on this program before, uh, she is celebrating the paperback release of her novel, The Daylight Marriage, which is available from Algonquin Books. It is the official March pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. For those of you not in the know, thenervousbreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own book club. You can sign up for it. You get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. I pick the books uh, in collaboration with Jonathan Evison. So for more information on that, please visit thenervousbreakdown.com. Click on Book Club in the menu bar. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. 
That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly, it's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Uh, having said that, I do want to share with you, before we get started with Melissa Broder, a brief conversation I had with Heidi Pittler this past week. For those of you... Uh, who heard her episode on this program a while back, and I think it was uh, episode 355. Heidi, in addition to being a fine novelist, is also uh, the editor of the Best American Short Stories Anthologies, which I'm sure you've seen in your local bookstore. So uh, here uh, is Heidi Pittler and I touching base uh, about The Daylight Marriage, this month's official pick for the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, and, uh, you know, we talk about some other things, too. Here she is. This is Heidi Pittler. That's the biggest thing, I think, with kids. It's just your sleep and you become a crazy person. Yes. I don't know that I ever got it back. Yeah, you know, I don't know either. Like, there's sometimes I wonder, yeah. you know, you'll sit there and have these moments where you're like, is this a permanent shift? Like, is this part of my life, yeah. the part of my life that involves, like, regular sleep? Is that just done? And, uh, yeah, I'm still waiting for it to come back, and my kids are nine, but I think I'm weird. I don't don't listen to me. Yeah, my, well, my mother, my both of my parents are bad sleepers. My mom in yeah. particular, and I, I sometimes wonder, like, do I have that? Am I going to be that? Like, am I going to be seventy and getting like three and a half hours of sleep a night or whatever it is she gets? And yeah, um, no, it's not fun. I hope not. I like to sleep. Yeah. I'm I'm pro sleep. Cool. I'm completely pro sleep, and I miss it so much. I don't know what happened. Now, how do you get everything done? Because you edit America, like Best American Short Stories, you write books, you are raising, you're doing it all. Well, I only have two kids. I mean, I, I, I sit there and I often complain about it all. And then I think I should shut my mouth because the person I'm talking to has four kids and works six jobs. And, um, but for me, I, um, I do it really badly. I have no advice to give anyone who do, does a lot of stuff. Um, I constantly come up with new systems and then abandon them. You know, I, I used to be, it, it really, for me, it all went to hell when I had kids. Before kids, I would wake up early, I would write my fiction, and then I would go to an office and I was an acquiring editor and it was all very orderly. And then my whole, you know, you have kids and I, I just, I started, um, my job as series editor of best American short stories right after having kids. So I, you know, everything was at the mercy of them and I was reading, you know, in doctor's offices and at night and, um, it's still kind of like that. I just squeeze in things. Um, you know, one thing I've started doing that I didn't used to do is I would, I go away to write because I think that, it's just been harder and harder for me to focus on writing fiction at home. What, is that, what become, does that mean? You go away, like you go like on. Like go, a, I do. You know what? I'm a big fan of the DIY residency. So I'll, you know, I have a few friends that are writers, and we'll rent a house somewhere and we'll go away for a weekend or a week. I can't usually do a week, but they usually can, and it's the best thing ever. We spend all day writing. You know, we like make dinner and drink wine at night and talk, and it's. I just find it's the most productive way for me to write and the most sane way. Yeah, that sounds good. 
Yeah, I really, this is the way to do it. Um, I, for me, at least. It's like, on and, I, I'm picturing like on Golden Pond, like in like a oh, cabin. Okay. And, and, I'm not that old, but. No, then, I know. Yeah. No, I just mean like, I just mean location wise, not like you're Henry, you know, like you're hanging out with I know. Henry Fonda. I but... feel like it sometimes and I, I probably sleep about the way they did. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it is kind of like that. It's this weird little magical thing. And I used to, you know, I did it a while. I used to go away by myself and I thought I'm even crazier away by myself than I am at home by myself. So I think it's always good to like touch ground with other people at night yeah. and um, especially writers. Cause we're all the same kind of crazy. And um, so, so yeah, that's just been really helpful this past year or two is to just Where do you have go? a husband who's supportive and, and he's cool with it. And um, we go, there's a place in Western mass that I really like um, called Wellspring. And I just went down to the Cape with a couple writers and, and that was really great. And where else have I gone? Oh gosh. Oh, you know what I did? I did the other weekend. I had a reading up in Vermont and I went up a night early and I just holed up in the hotel. Yeah. And it did turn into a little bit of me being alone for too long. And so when I came out to my reading, I couldn't stop talking. That's what happens. You just become like, hi, I'm a crazy person. I haven't seen anyone in three days and I really want to talk a lot and you don't want to listen to me. And now, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point. I mean, I think like there could be some sort of like romance attached to the idea of like, I'm going to get away. I'll be in a cabin in the woods. There'll be no distractions. And then you get up there and you're by yourself and you're like, that might not be the healthiest choice. Like, I think having right. a, a little bit of balance, like having some, like you said, some way to connect with other people at night is the perfect, might be the perfect solution. I think it is. And I think um, unless you have, you know, a, a regular life where you work with other people and getting away is really necessary for me, I'm, I'm on my own all the time because I'm either reading, I'm reading for best American short stories or I'm doing freelance work on my own or I'm writing. Um, so I don't, I don't need a lot more time on my own. Yeah. Well, and then you're like, with regard to the best American short stories, like what, what part of that cycle are you in right now? So right now I am in um, the, the part where I am um, waiting to hear from my guest editor about the two, what are we at? 2016 volume, which comes out in October. Um, and, and I've just started reading for the 2017 volume. Okay. So you're that far I, out ahead. I'm that far out ahead. And yeah, who, who is your guest editor for 2016? Can you say? Uh, it's Juno Diaz. Okay. So you... yeah, it's, it's been pretty cool. Yeah. So what do you do? You, you and Juno like collaborate, you, sh you just pass stories back and forth to one another or? Well, it's, it's different every year. I mean, the, the way that it's supposed to go is I go out and read and then I send them 120 stories and they pick the top 20 and we go back and forth. But it really every year is so different. I have some people that want to read alongside me and go read their own stuff. I have some people that just sort of I hand them the stories and they hand me the list and there's very little back and forth. I'm not sure with him yet. He's got a lot on his plate. Um, so, uh, you know, I think he's digging out from that and I'm trying to give him the space to do it on his own and figure it out. And um, it's always different than people think it's going to be. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm curious to hear, I'm still waiting. I don't, I don't know what his thoughts are, but um, I should know pretty soon. Okay. And then uh, has anyone ever tried to bribe you to get into that? Um, I wish they no, did. No one ever I has. Get nothing. No I get nothing. No payola. I'm totally open to it. Okay. Yeah. Well, if anyone out there uh, has a lot of some extra cash on yeah. hand. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm I'm good for that. Um, all right. And then anything else? Are you working on another novel or another? Uh... Yeah. So I'm working on a new one and it's really different from the last one. Um, I just, you know, the last one was pretty dark and emotional. And so this one, I just thought I want it to be a little bit more. Like I kind of have this bitchy side of me and I'd like that to come out more. <laughs> <laughs> 
Me too. <laughs> the bitchy snark. Yes. So that's that. This one seems to be a little more satirical, and it involves publishing and writing a little bit, and um. It's been fun. I mean, again, as my writing is always want to do, I always start out saying this is going to be a hilarious romp. And then I'm like, you know, sliding down the bowels of hell and I'm writing something dark again, but not as dark as the last one. I'll just say that. All right. Well, uh, wish you well on it. Thank you so much for talking with me. Congratulations on the paperback release of The Daylight Marriage. Thanks so much, Brad. And best of luck on, uh, on all fronts with all that you have going on. Thanks to you, too. All right, guys, there you go. That's Heidi Pittler, The Daylight Marriage. Her novel is available now in trade paperback from Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. Go get your copy. It's a good one. And uh, don't forget to check out the Nervous Breakdown Book Club over at thenervousbreakdown.com. Sign up. Support book culture. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, then. Uh, I think that does it. I think we should just get started with the main event. Don't you agree? Let's get started. Let's get Melissa Broder on the program. Her new essay collection is called So Sad Today. It's available now from Grand Central Publishing. Uh, Just very pleased to have her here and to see this book roll out into the world. Here she is, folks. This is Melissa Broder. Could I be a good mother? Probably. I'm a good hound mom. Yeah, you're great. I'm like really good with the dog. By the way, that's a step before kids. I know. But see, this is the thing. <laughs> Everyone who has kids like wants you to have kids and they're obsessed I with it. I don't. Yes, I, you do. I know you do. No. You feel like I am missing out on no. a miracle of life. I think. On like the miracle. Like I will know no true, I will not know that kind of love in my lifetime if I don't have kids. But the, True. But, but I'm okay to miss out on that. Exactly. I don't need all the love. I don't and, need love in every incarnation. And you can get it in different ways. Yeah. Like, you know, or like different, like there are, there are kinds of experiences that I won't have because I chose to have kids. Definitely. So, I mean, you know, it's a trade-off and not right. everybody is meant to do it. So, but I still know that secretly you really are like have a fucking kid i i am happy for anyone who does because i know how much joy it brings but i don't judge people who don't want to do it right but here's the thing i'm like why is it a question of judgment like i guess because it's biological and most people do it yeah i mean you know it's like i'm conflicted about it you know we live on a very troubled planet and... I was talking to my therapist about it and I was like, okay, well, here's the thing. I was talking to a couple friends about it and I was like, okay, so 10% of me maybe might want to maybe have a kid. And she's like, yeah, having a kid fucking sucks. It has to be like 70% of you. And then I was talking to my therapist about it and I'm always Googling like people who regret having children because I like know they're <laughs> out there. Like no one will admit it, but that shit exists. And my therapist is like, you know what? Like you might regret not having kids, but there are people who regret having kids. And yeah. like. Well, I mean, I think if you... Also, I know I'd have a fucked up kid. No, nah, I mean, everybody, every human being is fucked up. Um, I think that, 
knowing you, if you had a, a child, you would love that child to pieces. Right. Maybe. But I mean, uh, like, are there people who don't love their child? Maybe. But I I don't know. It's a very deep I'm not bond. saying I wouldn't love my child. But I'm just saying, like, also, like, there is, like, the Sylvia Plath situation. Like, yeah. I kind of have the feeling that it would be too much for me. Well, you know, that's something to consider. Yeah. And why would it be? I mean, like, that, that brings up uh, maybe, like, the main thrust of your book and like this conversation which would be what mental illness yeah mental. those those struggles like i mean that's definitely something to the, consider when it like, comes to just like why do we exist right and like why would you bring another human onto this planet without its consent that's how i feel like i'm kind of like what if the kid doesn't want to be alive and then i'm like sorry yeah mommy wanted a baby yeah like whoops a daisy <laughs> i was just trying to fill the existential hole in my life and now you exist yeah well i mean welcome you know it's a I mean, I guess the flip would be you fall in love with somebody, you want to bring more love into the world, the right. world needs good people, you're committed to raising that child and uh, live, you know, living so a life. you're like a good citizen. I feel like you like know what you're doing. You're like a good <laughs> citizen. I'm not saying I'm not like a good human being. Sorry, I'm taking off. For the listener, Brad told me not to make noise, but I'm taking off my big leather jacket. <laughs> so um, it's it's rattling. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's like... I think you're a good person. You do? Yeah. Thanks. I think you underestimate yourself. I think, are most people good people? Yes. Like, most people are good people. Most people, people are, like, are, okay. People are trying. People, yeah, are, people they, are trying. They're failing a lot. A Every, lot everybody, fail, everybody fails a lot. Everybody has different challenges. But, like, I really do believe that most people are good. I don't think I'm, like, not a good person. I just, like, feel, like, a sense of cosmic terror that I'm being judged. Do you know what I'm saying? By, like, some sort of, like, extra... Like a cosmic arbiter. So, God. Well, for shorthand, we could call it God, right? But sometimes it's like an X, you know. Like I'm, I'm always being judged or judging myself, or projecting that someone else is judging me. Like I'd say ninety nine percent of the time, and like the one percent I'm not, it makes me very nervous to not be feeling like you're being judged. Yes, because here's the thing: is this a Jewish thing? Well, it's definitely part Jewish. Because I'm Catholic and I have like the Catholic guilt, like, right. the, the, like the residuals of that. I've, I think we've talked about this before. But I feel like you're able to get out from under that sometimes and like be kind of whole. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. I mean. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I think like for me, the judgment and like the perception that people are judging me and my own judgment of self and like all this like internal goings on I think is a way of like avoiding sitting still and and being because I think like when you sit still like I love to be alone but it doesn't mean there's not like a hundred narratives going on but when and when I do my okay so I do my morning meditation right I do like my 10 minute meditation every morning and it's very like I do my meditation I check the meditation off the list and I don't have trouble being still then because I'm like doing my thing you know, but, but like, getting stillness out of the way, I'm getting stillness out of the way. I'm <laughs> laying it down. The stillness has been done. Right. But then like, ask me to be like totally still, not online, um, not engaging with like stuff, like not obsessing like any other time of day. And I, I get really scared. Like I get scared of that stillness. Yeah. I mean, cause like, I think when you get still, you start to feel your suffering, you yeah. know, like that, like I always call it the block of suffering. It's like in your chest. Oh, it's, isn't it so in your chest? It's weird. It's like solar plexus level, like this kind of knot or whatever. That's how I, it manifests for me physically. And like when you become aware of that, it's just kind of like, ugh. And it's I think totally in your chest. So yeah. much of um, phone time, so much of obsessive tweeting, so much of TV watching, so much of anything that we might consume to try to uh, distract ourselves is to try to distract ourselves from that. Yeah. But 
the irony is that I don't think there's any way to untangle that knot or to chip away at that block other than to be still and to actually, um, you know, go through it. You can't go around it. No, I, I know. But I'm like, you'd think we, after like, God only knows how many years of 10 minute meditations. I'm like, can I, like, that's my safe space. It's like, can I just chip away at it? Like during that time? Like, why do I, <laughs> you have are, to be, you no, are, I know. And I know I am. I think the thing is though, it's like, yeah, like to feel to like feel deeply is to like really be alive, right? Right. And to really be alive, like implicit in that is like the weirdness of existence. Sure. And like the fact that none of us really know what's going on, that's a little spooky. Right. And also like, you know, that we are going to die. And so I think like those feelings, like it's almost like if I can just like run from that stuff enough, if I can make like a little box of like obsessing about my hair and like live in that box of your hair of, looks nice oh it does yeah thank you I've, i have had, been having kind of like a hair crisis lately oh yeah yeah i had like a oh i told you about that yeah i i like um i don't know it got like fried and then i like so i got like very obsessed with like the deep conditioners and i made like everything about the deep conditioners and like as painful and and as much like suffering as there was in the obsession with like my hair myself and the deep conditioners I feel like in some way that anxiety, that like contained anxiety with limits and is preferable to me on a lot of levels than the, than sort of the unbounded, unbridled anxiety of like, dude, I exist. It's finite. I'm not sure why. I'm not sure what happens next, which is fine. I don't think that much. I don't worry about the afterlife or anything. I'm not as worried about, I'm not that worried about death. It's the dying. Yes. What about you? I mean, okay. So a couple things I would say. When it comes to like questions of super cosmic significance, why are we here? How big is the universe? Is there extraterrestrial life? I tend to think there is just based on statistics, but trying to wrap my head around like those kinds of answers, I feel a sense of humility and resignation. Um, thinking that like, you know, as a human being, like this is bigger than my mind is capable of processing. Mm -hmm. Like maybe there's going to be somebody out there who can explain it to me, but like so far, I don't think any human being has a fucking clue. It's right. way too big. And so in light of that, when I think about approaches to well-being, when I think about approaches to spirituality, whatever you want to call it, um, I'm, I'm very much less interested in considering that stuff than I am in considering how to uh, handle my own suffering. And right, how, the how, problem of how to live, just, right? Just, you may not get why. Yeah, I mean, just suffering and, <laughs> and like the alleviation of suffering. And if I keep my focus there, then I'm able to enjoy my life, I think, more than I would be if I were like constantly like, it's a big universe. <laughs> you know, no. Like, I mean, okay. Well, first of all, I want to ask you some things that you've learned along the way. Okay. But I want to say that like, here's the things. Like sometimes like right now, I'm able to like talk about that and like address the mystery of the big universe and kind of be like, ha, 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 big universe, you know? And like, I'm sort of, it's at bay. Like the... I see it as almost like a window. Like right now my shade is like pretty much down, you know, like I'm sitting here with you. I'm like, I'm going to go get in my car. Like it, it, I'm not questioning what the car is. You know, I'm not questioning what this table in front of me is like, it's fine. And that, I think it, there's like a luxury in that there's a luxury in being able to like be absorbed in sort of the day to day. Right. Cause the opposite of that is the, the times that I've experienced in my life, which is like with the time I started so sad today and, and many other times where like, I'm not able to get out of that 
um, like, it's not a choice to think about that stuff. Like, I am consumed by that stuff. By, and, like, the cosmic questions. And there's a dread. There's a dread with it. You know what I'm saying? It's not, like, a pleasant, like, meandering through the, like, field. Well, okay, so is that... It's not a choice. So does that mean it's neurochemical? Yeah, I think... Well, I think it's... I mean, it, the last time it, I was really rocketed there was um, when... Uh, I guess it was, like, just about a, a year ago, I um, changed medications and... Um, I talked about this in the book. So I, I had been on Effexor for 11 years, which is an SSRI. Um, well, actually, I think it's an SSR or something else. But for all intents and purposes, it's in the same like families as like Lexpro, Prozac, all those types of antidepressant-type drugs. And I had been on it for 11 years. And I felt that it just wasn't really working anymore. I had had an For your anxiety. For my anxiety. Like, which the flip side of anxiety is depression, which I didn't even realize until a couple of years ago that that was the flip side of the same coin. But... Um, and the reason why I felt like it wasn't working was I was actually having listeners. I was actually having lunch with Brad. Um, and we should say we, we are uh, writing. We're screenwriting partners. We are. We're partners. We're part- yeah. yeah. We are create. We have. A, we are a creative partnership. We are. We're creative partnership. You moved to L.A. Within like four months, you're like on the phone, like Ian Kale and talking about your manager and like you don't at the car wash and you like don't know how the fuck that happened. And like Brad Listy is like your screenwriting partner and you're meeting him for coffee. This happened in a whirlwind and yeah. maybe like a little bit about the origin story and yeah, then we'll get back, we'll get back to Effexor. But like we will. you uh, moved to Los Angeles, a move about which you were uh, uncertain slash depressed. Yes, I was. I felt. Yes, I moved here because of family health situation as detailed and in the book so sad today uh on, on stands march 15th no so yeah so i moved here because of that and i had lived in new york for 10 years i didn't want to uproot my life i was scared right and um a couple of other things i think one of them just being my brain chemistry at the time but um that definitely that the knowing that i was going to be moving as a catalyst um in the fall of 2012 i was i became aware that i was going to be moving you know within a year and the fear of that plus like whatever my chemistry was doing at the time and you know, uh, other factors. There's always multiple factors. I was in a really bad cycle of anxiety. Like, um, my panic attacks were really bad. Um, and I was sitting in my office where I worked in New York at Penguin Books as a publicist for many years, That, which is how I knew Brad. Like, I knew Brad just through, like, literary scenes. And, um... Multiple scenes. Many scenes. <laughs> so many scenes. Um, and so I, um, I didn't know what to do with myself. Like, I was afraid, like the panic attacks were so bad every day and I'd been having them for years, but this was like a bad cycle of them. Like, it was really ratcheting bad. up. It was, it was a ratcheting. It was like cycle of doom. So, okay. So how would it manifest? Like take people into what, it, what, what is one of these? You're at Penguin, you're at your office, you're right. in your job. Like one of these things comes on, like what so happens basically, to you? Like I feel a strange sensation in my body that could just be a normal body sensation. It's like, you know, I have, I struggle, like I have a. I call, like a tickle in my throat or like I'm, you know, it's, a lot of times it's with my breathing. Like I'm like, can I breathe? Um, or I feel a feeling that I'm not expecting to feel and don't really understand. Or I have maybe a scary thought. Like one of those things happens sort of almost like instantaneously. And then I have a fear response that is totally disproportionate to what has happened. I have my, the fear response that I have is the kind of fear response that someone would have if they were being at a seven 11 and the place was being held up or if um, it's that intense, it's, like fight or fucking flight. Like, so basically for me, the symptoms are, um, it's always the breathing. Like I feel like I'm suffocating. Uh I feel like I'm suffocating, smothering, choking sensation, tightness in the chest. Um, a lot of times I get like a kind of dizziness, like my vision gets blurred. Um, 
when I get really, really deep into it, there can be something that happens that feels like that sensation you have when you're on mushrooms or acid where there's a sense of um, unreality or hyper-reality. Like, you know when you look at people uh, when you're tripping and they kind of look like they're made of like rubber or you sort of see from a different context and it's like really weird? Yeah. I get that. Jesus. Yeah. And um, It does not sound fun. No, it's really, it's really awful. Um, and so... Although, so how, how often was this happening during this phase? Like how often would you have one of these where well, you're in the midst of your life and potentially even in the midst of like a work situation? And right. How do you, what do you do? Well, to back up a little bit, um, so 11 years ago I got sober and the few years before I got sober, I was having this experience every morning within 20 minutes of waking up and I didn't know what it was. And a lot of that was... I was in withdrawal, like every, you know, I, I drank or, and used pills and downers every day. So I would wake up in the morning and I was going into withdrawal and withdrawal is a major catalyst for anxiety. So I started having these panic attacks. I didn't know what they were. Um, at the time I started dating a woman who had them herself. And so she told me, she would just be like, she had this dog and she was like, walk the dog, walk the dog. And she introduced me to <laughs> like, she introduced me to the world of, um, psychopharmacology and I found a psychiatrist. I found like some really bad, there's really bad psychiatrists who are just like pill pushers. So they basically, one of them got, they got me on a Fexer, um, which was good for me. First they tried a different one. It didn't work. But they also got me on um, Ativan, which is like a Valium type Okay. Thing. And so when you're getting sober and you are somebody who is yes. using downers and drinking alcohol right. on a daily basis, how does that factor in? Like how do these kinds of drugs like a Fexer factor into a pro, you know, program for sobriety? Well, here's the thing. So a Fexer... Um, when I was drunk all the time, Effexor didn't do anything. Um, the Ativan, which is the short-term sort of Valium, that's the kind of thing you can get addicted to. Um, the Valium-type stuff, or Ativan, benzodiazepines, Xanax, uh -huh. um, that stuff I um, tapered off of in early sobriety. First, I quit drinking, um, and then, like, it just, it was kind of lifted from me in a strange way. Basically, what happened, so... Um, so I got really into yoga when I was 25 and I was always showing up to these yoga classes like fucked up like there was alcohol coming out of my pores and one of my yoga teachers <laughs> said to me you don't have to drink and I was like ha 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 like if you had my level of sensitivity you would because now not only was the alcohol and drugs like um, was I coming down from it and having these panic attacks but I was using it to treat the anxiety the anxiety that had always lived in me and the discomfort in my own skin but these panic attacks as they had started ratcheting up um, you know, and becoming every day, like I always had to be on something. Right. Um, and so I was like, ha ha ha. So a couple months later I had had a particularly bad weekend. I was, um, I, oh, I fucked a coworker who I didn't, who I like said I wasn't going to fuck anymore. Cheated on my boyfriend. I was always cheating. Cheated on my boyfriend. Um, woke up in the coworker's bed. Um, and I realized I had run out of my prescription for benzodiazepines. And I, like, dragged him kicking and screaming to the, like, I, we, like, went to the pharmacy. I'm, like, sweating in line, like, already coming off everything. Um, and then I was, like, fuck, like, this is so And I'd gotten really drunk at this work party and, like, said a lot of bad things. So I was, like, okay, I'm, like, uh, uh, I shouldn't, like, okay, maybe I'm going to, like, stop drinking hard alcohol. And I had never, ever I one time before I had tried to quit drinking. It lasted for 24 hours and it was so <laughs> painful and lonely. And I was like, no, like I just will not do this. Right. But I was like, maybe I'll quit a hard alcohol. Well, like by noon I'm drinking beer and like eating like tacos that night. My friend and I went to like an AIDS benefit and, um, I was like so fucked up and at three in the morning we left in a cab and, um, I had, I had been drinking an Amstel light and I brought the Amstel light in the cab and I may have bought some more Amstel light when we got, back to her apartment at the deli, went upstairs, had the answer light. The next morning, 
the next day, when you're 25, you can do things like be fucked up all the time and go to yoga. The next day at noon, I'm in my um, yoga class and I don't know what happened, but I'm in there and all of a sudden I hear my te- same teacher, she's teaching the class, but she doesn't say this in the moment. And I hear her say, you don't have to drink today. Like I hear that in my head. And people had said, you're an alcoholic. Do your parents know you're an alcoholic? They called me Cunty McDrinks a lot. Like, you know, I really like. People um, called you that? Yeah, this guy called me Cunty McDrinks a lot. Who the fuck is this guy? He was like a loser. I don't okay, know. Okay. Um, he was like this guy. Like, <laughs> he was an Irishman. <laughs> yeah, no, he was like this guy I dated in San Francisco. No, he was a Jew. I like uh, met him on JD. Okay. He was like a fellow Jew. Um, but so anyway, so I'm in her class and all of a sudden it was like, you don't have to drink today. And I don't know what happened. But like I went to brunch after that and I drank it everywhere. So if you're actually at a place like brunch where it's sanctioned to drink, like right. I would be drinking. Right. Mimosas. Just everything. Everything. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Like no, like screwdrivers or yeah. like, yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, I liked whiskey, <laughs> but probably maybe not at brunch. Maybe I would do like a screwdriver or something like multiple. So I didn't drink that day. And the next day I didn't drink, but I was like, you can't do nothing. You have to do like, you can't live in this world just like me and the world. Like that's insane. So, um, so I continued to like smoke weed, like a lot of weed and, um, take a lot of like painkillers that weren't prescribed to me. Like I remember I was like up in upstate New York sitting by this fireplace, like on a lot of morphine. And I was like, this sobriety is amazing. <laughs> I was like, this is the shit. And then, um, and at the time and I was also still taking, um, effects which I think was now starting to kick in more because I wasn't drinking and benzodiazepines, um, out of like, which is again, that class of drugs that's like out of Xanax, whatever. So, um, a month later I was like walking home. I lived in the East village and I passed this church and there were like all these gay men standing outside the church. And I was like, and I talked to them and like, I was like, they're not going to church. Like, I don't think they're going to church. And these people, um, helped me get sober and I have not had a drink or a uh, an, you know, medication that was not prescribed to me since then. And How like, many years? 11 years? It's been 11 years. Good for you. Yes. Well, I've had a lot of help, but yeah. um, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. But so in early sobriety, what I did was I, I got off of um, the benzodiazepines because they are addictive. Now, I don't have any opinion on what people who are sober do. Like what you do is between you and your doctor. I have a lot of friends who are sober who take um, Ativan as needed. And if I ever get to the point where it's between like Ativan and suicide or, you know, like the shit and the shit has been really bad, but I've always just chosen in my sobriety not to fuck with like the benzos because I just feel like it'll cause me more anxiety. Like I don't want to be sitting there like, because it's not the thing, a thing you take every day. It's something that you sort of administer to yourself. I'll obsess. Like I obsess when I'm like, eating a fondue and it has like I can tell it has Pernod in it and like a lot of people drink eat food that has wine cooked out but you wouldn't I, drink a, or you would not drink a, a kombucha no I don't fuck with kombucha I, I just you know what I like to keep it clean not because I think that like I'll lose my sobriety over a kombucha or like <laughs> a fucking like I don't know like a fondue right but because I know I don't use Listerine well I use Melissa's Melissa's eating a lot of fondue and drinking kombucha. Yeah, we're like, worried about her. We're worried about her. She's on the edge. <laughs> no, just because like I don't want to have to suss it in my mind. I like to keep things very clean. Right. You know. So some people do eat who are sober do eat food cooked in wine, but I just don't want to taste it. Like I just don't want to be involved. And it's easy enough. Clean to break. Not. I get it. Yeah. I get it. So what, when I was when I was coming, but having said that, if I met if it's ever the point of like you know if shit is like. And shit's been really bad in sobriety, but I've just like chosen not. 
you've been able to you've been able to power through somehow yeah like i've just and and people even my psychiatrists like who know i'm sober and are like you know let me give you like ativan for a few days just to like get through this and i'm just like i'm not a hero it's nothing like that it's just a question of knowing my own obsessiveness Mm -hmm. and knowing that i will torture myself over like well like how anxious am I? And like, uh-huh. am I taking this to get fucked? Because I love to be high. I love to be fucked up. Like, right. I want to live. My idea, like, when I hear the word enlightenment or spirituality, I still think just like heroin on a lotus. <laughs> like, that's what I want. I want to be not, I don't want the world to touch me. I want to just like be okay. Like this magical, mystical okayness. Right. So, that's the scoop. So, so I had been on Effexor uh, for I guess last spring was ten years, and the effects are had been good, you know. Um, and every couple years, though, I would go through these cycles where, like, I would say I'd, I, you know, I'd have anxiety and panic throughout my life. But every couple years, I'd have like maybe a bad, a really bad panic attack, which would then I'd get really worried about it and start obsessing about having another one, and it would bring me into this cycle of panic. And that's happened maybe. I mean, I've had panic attacks a lot throughout my sobriety, but these cycles of really intense ones have happened maybe like. I'd say five cycles, five or six cycles throughout the past 11 years. So, um, so. Like last spring you had what? So like, okay, well, so when I started So Sad Today, I was having one and I was like in my office and, um, and also I was really depressed too because, you know, having these panic attacks every day can really beat you down because you feel very alone. Right. Like it's not. Like, I just feel very alone in it. Like, even if I... I don't want to tell anyone that it's happening. And even if I have a psychiatrist, a therapist... I mean, it takes a lot to keep this ship afloat. Like, I've got a lot of help. But I still can feel really alone in it. Well, it's weird, you know, because... I, I mean, and tell me if this is correct, but it's like... It's it's not necessarily a matter of shame. Though, I guess there can be some part of that where, like, you don't want people to know you're not okay. But it's exhausting to just tell people over and over. Like, if you were to tell people and share this... Like that's an involved conversation. Yes. So part of the isolation is born from just wanting to avoid that exhaustion. It's both of the, it's shame. It's yeah. wanting to avoid that exhaustion. I parallel it to like, um, like when, you know how people say you die alone? I feel like panic attacks in a lot of ways are little deaths, especially when you think you are dying. And it's kind of like that. Like you're very alone. In it. Well, for me, I'm very alone in it. And um, so... So I didn't know what to do. And I had had my own Twitter account, Melissa Broder, which I, you know, of course, who doesn't want the glory of a great Twitter account? I'd been trying to make that <laughs> shit good for years. And like, it was good. You know, it was like a good Twitter account. Like, but um, I just started this anonymous Twitter account and I started just like literally tweeting into the void. I followed three people, like three weird tweeters. I like just thought were funny. Um, I had zero followers. The handle is at so sad today. The handle is at so sad today. Um, and like... What And I just started tweeting into the void and it was weird. Like people started following it. I guess like I, you know, maybe one person I was following followed back, retweeted and it started getting bigger and bigger. And, um, I did after a couple of months, like I, I had changed my medication. I'd done some other, like not changed it. Sorry. I had increased my effects there, done a lot of like healing work, whatever. Like I came out of this bad anxiety cycle, but of course, like people ask is so sad today, a character. And I'm like, no, it's a part of me. So that part always lives in me. So there's always something to tweet. You sure, know what I'm saying? Sure. Um, I'm always having disappointment. And, and people sometimes give you shit for tweeting about depression. Yeah, like oh, that, definitely. You know, they think that you're belittling it or they think that you're making light of something that shouldn't be made light of or trivializing. And totally. You get, you I'm get, like, listen, brah, this is my shit. 
I'm not tweeting. I'm not tweeting about your depression. I'm right. not tweeting about your anxiety or your. I'm tweeting about my own experience. This is where PC Twitter and PC culture gets to, gets gets me uh, well, a little I don't riled think up. It's PC, do you think it's PC? I would think that from like a social justice perspective, I would think that it's actually kind of ableist to tell someone what to say about their own depression. Whatever it is, like the thought police, like they well, just just don't follow it. What do you t- you know? Shut well, the, I shut think, the fuck but up. I, I think that the the social justice crew that you're referring to as the thought police might actually be on my side. Like in the sense of it's my narrative. Like, don't tell me how to like, don't tell me how to like speak my narrative. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, don't, um, like, Man, don't mansplain me, bro. Don't mansplain <laughs> my mental health. Right. Brad and I always joke about mansplaining because <laughs> Brad likes to mansplain me. Like, like he always has a good recommendation for like a fan. Like you must buy this this fan or this vent. But it's nice. Yes. I feel like you could rent Brad and like take. You'd want him to like take him to court with you. What's that? Like, I'm, like, I'm like a. I'm like. You an, should be rentable. I'm like Angie's list. He's totally <laughs> Angie's list. He's like a human Angie's list. So uh, so okay so so all right. So effects are forward, so sad happened? today. The Twitter account is born in New York in the state of one of these like you know concentrated panic attack clusters. Exa- you got it. And then and then so all right. So I moved to LA. The shit. The Twitter's blowing up bigger and bigger. Also, I love it because it's great for my depression. Because I mean, who doesn't love dopamine? I'm like for the first time in my life, I'm actually popular. No one knows it's me, <laughs> but that doesn't matter. You're still getting the oh you're still God. getting the favorites and the who retweets. Popular. I've never been like cool. What blew it up? What was it? I mean, aside from the fact that you were you were producing a lot of tweets, which you have to do if you want following, you have to deliver yeah. the goods, and they were good, and they were funny, and they were relatable. But like, was there something? Can you point to like an event that was like watershed where it was like, oh my god, this took it to the next level? Well, I think there were a couple things. I mean, it was weird. Like when I would go on there, after I you know I'd, I'd tweet every couple of days sometimes, and I'd go on there or like every day. And I would be like, Jesus Christ, like the interactions were crazy. So I think there was like a natural gr- a groundswell, if you will, like that just happened organically. But then Sky Ferreira started retweeting it. And that's, I think, like what took it to another level. And then Katy Perry, like maybe a year after it existed or maybe not even, maybe like a year and a half. Uh, and what if she has like millions and millions? Yeah. She has like what? 20 million followers? I don't even know. I have know. no idea, but, but a lot of millions. Like, like, yeah, like tens of millions of followers. So she started retweeting it. Okay. So my, and Miley Cyrus. And Miley Cyrus. So these people, we're talking like, let's just say 30 million people are yeah. getting a retweet from one of these people. Right. What? But I think there were like, honestly, I think I had like, before they even, I, I mean, I don't know. I exactly but i think i had like 30 or 40,000 like followers. there were a lot before Katy Perry and Miley Cyrus So you'd built the foundation. Yeah, i did and Sky Ferreira. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> that but, retweets like the, her she I mean i think it was her. Who knows who did it before her? Like right. i know the guy from Vampire Weekend was I don't know. I wouldn't even know these people were following because i wasn't used to having this many followers on my other account. So it's hard to tell who's following you. So i wouldn't even know. And then like i'd get these teens being like introduce me to Ezra Koenig or like introduce me to Sky. And I'm like, what the fuck are they talking about? Yeah. I don't know Sky Ferreira. And then I, I was like, wait a second. And I would look at her feed and be like, oh shit, she follows. Right. So that was kind of like how that thing worked out. Okay. And so what is a, what does a Miley Cyrus bump look like? Like, did you ever measure like after she retweets you, are you getting like 10,000 new followers? Like, what are you, hmm. you know, it's funny. It's probably less than you might think. You get a lot of bots, uh-huh. a lot of bots, but I think it just sort of... It's exposure. Yeah, it's like people more like... People fave more than they follow. Teen, teen girls and, and women in their... Teen, well, I always call it the teens, right? But actually, it's a, 
I mean, people of all ages follow this account, as we'll 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 explain how Brad was following it. But um, so I think that like I always say teens, but I do think it was the teen like Miley and Katy Perry and uh, Sky. They they retweet to teen girls and teen girls like. They're just their enthusiasm. Like when they like something, they really they like really it. Fucking like yeah. it. So I think that's kind of what happened. It wasn't like necessarily the amount of them, but it was just those girls like really saw that I'm like fucking so immature and have the heart <laughs> of like a 16 year old and really liked the account. And yeah. I think like it spread a lot in that way too. Well, I think yeah. I mean, I think that there is something about the emotion and the intensity of the emotions that you are dealing in with that account that is yeah. very relatable to a teen but i would guess that most teenagers don't have the ability to articulate the geography of those emotions the way that you can so i think that that may be the right. service that it's providing to those those young girls and that's why they're getting so excited because they're seeing themselves in it they're feeling themselves in it but it's like any kind of in any kind of writing that we really respond to it it, it kind of uh, art, articulates or clarifies things that we feel but might not be able to clarify ourselves i think you're right so that's maybe well it. put yeah so um i was following it so brad was following it you moved out here so i moved out here and i okay so as i said i have my personal twitter account melissa broder and then i had i have my so sad today account and no and still no one knew, knew it was me it was this was like the best secret i've ever kept in my life <laughs> actually i told one person at this point one woman on the internet um but that was it and who was um, it my friend Molly Soda, she's a... Oh, yeah. I don't know why I told her. It was like we were DMing one day and I was or something. She was safe. Yeah, because like I felt like she would get it, you know? Right. But actually, the difference between telling... The difference between having zero people know and one person know was like a bigger deal somehow to me than like the difference between like one person and like 20. Yeah. Or like 20 and everyone. Like Molly Soda was like the Alfred to your Batman. Yeah, she was totally Alfred. And also, I mean, I don't even know if she's paying that much attention, but like... Sh- just like that I was no longer anonymous like I felt very self-conscious even just that w- one person I was gonna say does that affect your ability to do it you know it's one thing to be that tweet- affected me more than like, like once I came out as so sad today to everyone like it didn't really affect it I still feel very protected okay well, I mean yeah I mean there is like That's a strange well it's like the wall of the internet it's not, yeah. like, it's not like you're in a room with like an <laughs> audience of uh you know 300,000 people watching you type yeah you but know? I type I tweet things from there that like if I said on Facebook or even on my personal Twitter people would be like um, are you okay? Right. You know. It's a safe space somehow. It's a safe space. So, so yeah. So Brad and I were at some reading, and yeah, we um, were at Skylight Books. Skylight Books, and so I had been, I have, I so I had been. I was like, well, if my So Sad Today account has this many followers, like, I want my personal account to have a lot of followers. So I had been like retweeting my personal account. I call it the So Sad Today bump. So I would retweet it. And, like, leave it for, like, 10 minutes so that, like, my tweet would get, like, a lot of – my Melissa Broder tweet would get, like, a lot of followers. And then, like, quickly unretweet it so it wouldn't be, like, in the So Sad Today feed, right? Along with all the other people. I retweet a lot of people. So my Melissa Broder account started getting, like, lots of retweets and faves. So Brad, like, corners me at this book event. And he's like, (laughs) what are you doing? He's like, how is your Melissa Broder Twitter account? Because you had like, what, 12,000 maybe followers yeah. at that point. And I'm looking at your tweets and you've got like... It's like, four- they're not that good. I mean, yeah, you've got like 458 <laughs> retweets. I'm like, what the fuck? And I'm looking at my tweets and I'm like, if I get five retweets, I'm excited. Aww. So I cornered you. Um, look, look at you pitying me. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, you know, I have my own thoughts about what you could do differently. On I know, Twitter, I know, I know, I know. So anyway, I corner Melissa. I'm like, you, what the fuck is going on? This is incredible with your Twitter and... Uh, she pulls me aside. 
She tells me, I have something to tell you. She explains to me that she's so sad today, at which point I'm like, wait a minute, that's you. Yeah. I had been following it, not knowing it was you. Yeah. And had been aware of it for a while and had been a fan of it. And so... That was the genesis of our screenwriting partnership because yeah, I was like, why aren't you doing anything with this? I was like, what am I supposed to do? Like write YA? Like I'm a poet. Okay. I spend my time like with my head in the oven, basically. Like why? Like I'm not on writing. Effects or... Yeah. On effects or like trying to stay alive. Like why? Like, no, I'm not writing YA. So we kind of came up with this idea and we basically just made these teen characters and we wrote a script. Um, and then we got like, okay. And then we got agents. We got so agents. We have agents and managers. Right. Shout out to to Chris and yeah. Bill. Our team. Our team. <laughs> <laughs> Julian and Brad. Julian and Brad. And at this point, this was when I was like, oh, fuck. Like, how did LA, like, how did this happen? Like, this was, you moved to LA and you do not, like. You really did. You got to LA and, like, all of this happened pretty quickly. Like, within, like, a year. Yeah. And all, then. All thanks to you. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was, it's a team effort. We have yeah. a weird, like, this is the thing I would say about us. I don't know how to game it. It's like, I guess for whatever reason, the combination of our two. Uh, creative temperaments, personalities. Brad's like the architect. He yeah. like mansplains the house. Okay. He like builds the house. Yeah. And I'm like the interior decorator. <laughs> like I go around. I'm like, uh, this is disgustingly ugly. Um, dick like dickhead is not hyphenated. <laughs> um, Especially when it comes when it comes to like we were writing teen comedy. Yeah. So it was like um, the, the, the jargon. Well, you know that stuff. Yeah. Like you know, so you would save me for myself because I can be a little bit antiquated in my. I'm, I'm like I'm like mid nineties teen ladies actually. <laughs> so anyway, like, the loss of her virginity, yeah. V card. I'm, I'm like, <laughs> can you not say V card? So anyway, so I clean it up. Yeah, you clean it up, and like I I think that there is like as somebody who's written, um, you know, or tried to write books uh, throughout my adult life, and you as well, like writing poetry and now writing an essay collection. You know, these are endeavors that you undertake individually. And so to then shift into a writing collaboration yeah. is a, is kind of a, you know, it's a different beast. Very. And I don't know. There's something mystical about it. I there don't, is. I don't understand it it's really. It's a mystical union. I don't want to, I don't want to question it too much. But no. So question. far, so far it's worked well. Yeah. We wrote that first script in like a month. We got our people. We got our people on the basis of, I, we got, got them fast. We've gone to like a thousand meetings so many so many meetings so many, so many i've gotten so many bottles of water <laughs> and i don't even like water though that one person gave us uh what was like fruity flavored sparkling yes. water and you got very excited about I that i would actually love what was i don't remember the brand but if i knew the brand i would say i'm like i want so sad today to have like us like if so sad today doesn't do any ads on the twitter um even though people like offer but just i don't want to like pimp it out like that right. but if it's something that i actually love i would like I'm like, please, cereal. Like, please, Cinnamon yeah. Toast Crunch, if yeah. you're out there. Or, like, Quest Bars. Like, <laughs> give me free Quest Bars. I will promote you. Quest Bars are actually, I think, those are the ones that are actually pretty good. They're delicious. But they're, they also, like, ingredients-wise. Yeah, like, they're not bad for you. They're not as bad. I live on them. You do. I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> I feel very passionate. So, anyway, so... <clears throat> So we sold a show to MTV. Yeah, we sold that uh, teen show to MTV. Like you go in and you pitch. Emma Roberts was involved. Emma Roberts. Yeah. Um, yes. Like Are the, we name dropping? We're like circle. This is the part where I would just turn off the podcast. I don't know. Like I just. I would turn it off. Uh, this you guys is, can turn it off. This is. This, but this is kind of like a. This is a scoop. But this is what a, happened. This was our secret life. Yeah, and like I haven't. We didn't tell. We haven't said it publicly yet. I've never talked about it. This happened. This happened. We sold a television show in 2015. 
in 2015. To MTV. Brad Listy and Melissa Broder did. Yeah. It was and never in Variety. It was never in Variety. And, uh, you know, you what happened... And they're not going to do anything with it. And at, neither of us are rich. At least, yeah, at least now. Yeah. But we, we did... We, we did, did get, we're we got, not rich. I have a little savings account now. Which yeah. Is nice. We got paid a little bit of money. We went through the process. You're in a room. You're pitching. Suddenly you have, um, you know, people who are attached as executive producers and you're going over the pitch and you're doing all this stuff and there's something very performative about it. Very. That we had to sort of learn. You know, you have to kind of go in and be the music man and give the give the sale, you know, make the sale. Well, I think the best part was my manager, um, our manager was like, and like Emma Roberts' manager were like, don't say anything about your anxiety disorder. Like they want, because basically like writing for TV is very social, right? So it's like, they want to know that I can like actually come in and like, which I'm not even, oh, Brad will kill me for saying this. I'm like, I'm not even convinced that I can, but <laughs> that I can come in and sit with a bunch of people and like, write, you know, with them in tandem in a room. Um, so they were like, don't say anything about your anxiety disorder. Like you don't want them to think you're like not able to do it. And I'm like, well, okay. And then like, so we're talking to them about this, like our idea for like this teen show and the guys and the producer's like, okay, we really like this. But the one thing we're most interested in is the anxiety and depression. And, like, for the next 20 minutes, I was like, well. And I just, like, walked them through. That was really when we saw I think that was yeah, when we that sold was when the we show. Sold it. it was just like, I was like, all right, if you want to know about panic disorder, let me tell you. So, um, so one never knows. But anyway, so nothing's going to happen with that. That we know of. Well, I always like to say that, like, you know, they, they just aren't making it this season. Yeah, you never know. I mean, they own it and, like, they have the option do to do... they still own it? I guess they still own they it. They do. So we'll see what happens. I mean, when this collection of essays blows up and becomes a national sensation, maybe they'll have uh, second thoughts. Well, by the way, that just because they're, they have that teen TV pilot, the rights to So Sad Today, the book, <laughs> are still available for movie or TV adaptation. The Twitter feed is available. Jerry Bruckheimer, if I you're mean, listening. I will always have to tweet, but... Yeah, if anyone like famous or whatever is listening and they want to like make it into a TV show yeah. about existential despair, let's do it. It's still available. Let's fucking do it. In so- any event, all right. So that happened. Then we wrote a script about my open marriage. Right. Then we wrote one about like teen football because I felt bad because I was like, all right, if we have to write one about anxiety and depression, and then we're writing one that's like, basically <laughs> about my vagina. I was like, all right, Brad, we can write some shit about football. So we wrote about football. <laughs> I'm not that huge of a football fan. We did a super bad. You're not. I, yeah, I mean, I'm, I have mixed feelings about it now okay. that, like, the brain injury stuff. Like, oh, yeah. I legitimate, you know, it's a legit person. Uh, it's a legitimate. You take these things into account. It's a legitimately troubling aspect of the game. Uh, but I will say that, like, the, the, the boy, it was more boy centered as opposed or male centered as was. opposed it to female centered. Yeah. yeah. And it was, uh, it's kind of like super bad in terms of its tone. Yeah. So, and then we've done, we've done lots of projects. We've done lots of, we're, we got, pro, we got projects coming out the ass. <laughs> yeah, we got, and we're, we're a productive team and uh, I feel like we generate a lot of material and that's part of the, the mystical thing about it. It's that's just the mystical connection. Yeah. I think shit happens. We're able to do it. So, um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about, so last year when I had to change meds. Oh, right. Yeah. I don't remember why we were talking about that, but I feel like it's, it's effects or it's the panic yeah. attacks. It's the sadness. Right. And so, then these meds eventually get to a point where they're not right. The effects are just like, I felt like it wasn't up to snuff anymore. And I felt that way because I was having lunch with Brad Yeah. and, um, I induced the worst, the, the, induced the panic attack that broke the a spiral of back. hell. <laughs> so I was having, I was eating with Brad and in my neighborhood, and all, and I hadn't like really eaten enough that day because I have like body dysmorphia issues. And um, <laughs> we were eating, and then like we were supposed to be doing work, and I had my dog with me, and I just felt like very stressed out. I think because like 
I felt like I wasn't giving you enough of my time that day and I sort of knew you needed like a little more of my time and like I felt bad that I had brought the dog because we were supposed to be like doing work. I don't know. There was just like a lot of like guilt and whatever. Anyway, so I had a bad panic attack. And usually no one will ever know if I'm having a panic attack. Like Brad and I go into these meetings and I have them all the time. And after I'm like, did you know that I was like basically (laughs) suffocating and unable to breathe? And he's like, no, I had no idea. But so in this case, it was so bad and I felt so dizzy and I got vertigo, which is like something that does happen sometimes to me, but it's rare that I actually voiced. I actually said to Brad, which is actually a sign of my comfort with you. But I said to him, I was like, "I I feel really fucking weird. We have to go. And we we were near my house. So we check, walked, please. Check, please. <laughs> I was like, I'm having, I think I'm having a bad panic attack. So we walked back to my house. And while one might think it might feel good to, like, actually say to someone who, like, is a friend of yours and cares about you and you care about them, like, I had, I'm having a panic attack. And to put those things in the light, what ended up happening was I became terrified that now, first of all, with Brad, I had now used up my – I could never again have a panic attack with him, with you, that – made us have to leave a situation because then I'm just like... No, you can always have a panic attack with me. Right, but where I had... But, but then I'm like getting in the way of our like working our whatever. Empire. Yeah, our- like I'm not <laughs> up to snuff or something. And then also just like, you know, to reveal that about yourself, it's like it kind of makes it real and it means like if you say it, then it's like... If, I don't know. I've, I've written about this. Just like that you... You feel exposed and I, it is. I feel like I have one panic attack card with like each human being but if I like... Every time I meet with someone, I'm having to leave. Like, that's a little weird. So that, of course, all that kind of perfectionistic thinking spiraled me into – I started having panic attacks every day. And I was like, all right. I'm on Effexor. So we 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 uh, increased – my psychiatrist and I increased my Effexor, but it, like, didn't do anything. I just felt, like, over-medicated and, like, it wasn't doing anything. Right. So we decided we were going to take me off Effexor and on try Prozac. So for the first time in 11 years, we started like reducing the effects or reducing the effects or adding Prozac and I started doing really well. But then, um, when I went completely off the effects or like three days later, I was away in the desert and I had like one of the worst panic attacks I've maybe ever had. It was like, I would call it less of a panic attack and more of like facing my, facing like the existential doom and like, was that when it was like cloudy in the desert? When it was like, yeah. it was like rainy in Palm Springs. Yes. Or, oh and it was like I was facing sort of like I, I woke up in the middle of the night, and I felt that like my basically the only way to describe it is like you know when Alice goes down the rabbit hole. Yeah. I felt like my mind like there was no bottom. Like I kept thinking I want to go home, but I felt like even if I went to the home where I live in Venice, like it wouldn't be home. Like there is no land. There's nowhere to land. You no, just yeah. keep falling because there because we don't know. That's how it felt. And it was fucking terrifying. So, um, and what the reason for that was because I was completely off the effects, sir. And, but I didn't realize that that was the withdrawal from that because I had been fine as I was decreasing it. So I really just thought it was like over for me. Yeah. It's over. Uh-huh. And the feeling and the residual feelings of doom after an experience like that, you know, you're just shaken. You're very shaken. So. I remember the next day I tweeted something and like Brad called me and was like, are you okay? And no one ever does that when I tweet shit from so sad today. But I guess like people could tell that like, I really wasn't like, like I'm usually not okay, but I was like, but I'm usually okay within my not okayness, but I was like really not okay within my not okayness. And that was not, I mean, it was scary. It's scary to be vulnerable. Even when you tell people like everything, you still don't tell people anything. Uh huh. Well, I mean, there's, yeah, there's parts of yourself that you always kind of keep under lock and key or, or I think sometimes, um, there can be aspects of 
your internal world or your suffering or whatever you want to call it that, you know, you might not have words for yet, or you might not fully understand yet. I mean, sometimes it takes a while. It's just like kind of like this, uh, nondescript or undefined part of that block of suffering. If we're going to continue that metaphor and, you know, you're chipping away at it and every once in a while, like you get a little clarity on something or, or not. But when you talk about having gone through this like really dark episode in the desert and then you kind of come out the other end of it, but you're still sort of reeling from it. Mm -hmm. Are you reeling from it because it happened or is it like lingering fear of that feeling coming back? Do you know what I'm saying? It's it's both, but I think it's really like I wasn't even completely out of it yet. Uh, You know what I'm saying? Like I just felt like, like I would be, um, like once I did get home, I would be like eating and I have this little kitchen nook and I'd be eating there. And like that kitchen nook became a place I couldn't go because every time I sat there, I felt like I was suffocating. And like, I can't explain why, you know, it's but like it, Pavlov. Yeah, it's, it's exactly. It's not like a, like a superstitious thing. It, it is. It's like classically conditioned. And I've actually been doing some work with my therapist lately about like physical sensations that kind of occur before the panic attack. Like there's always more, there's always more to learn in the world of anxiety, but what ended up helping me ultimately, and it took months to get out of that too. What helped was going back on Effexor. So I was on a little bit of effect. Now I'm on Effexor and Prozac. Uh-huh. I take smaller dose, smaller dose of Effexor than I did. And then also some Prozac that helps. Um, and also I went to see a cognitive behavioral therapist Okay. and the CBT was really helpful. Why? Because it's really about tools and it's really dismantling your own thinking and your own catastrophizing. Right. I mean, am I like cured? Like, no. I no, mean, but you I, have the tools. But I have the tools, although I always forget the tools in the heat of the moment. But yeah, I would say that CBT did more for my anxiety disorder than like 11 years of talk therapy. You've been through a lot. I've been through some shit. You've got a burden. I always say this about you. Like, it's heroic how much you have to. I mean, you have, so to, nice. you have to do a lot of work, but you do the work. I do, I do the work. You know, you show up um, uh, for therapy and, and all the other myriad things you do to stay afloat. But I, it's a lot. And uh, I applaud you. I'm, I admire you for taking it all on because uh, that's the opposite of running away from it. Even though right. w- within the context of those things, you know, we all, whatever we all have to do to kind of run towards our difficulties and to address them, we all run away too. Like checking Twitter. We doing have whatever. to. I so mean... it's nobody bats a thousand, but in the big ways you're going at it and that takes courage. Yeah. You know? And I guess we go at, what, I mean, what, what other choice do we have though? Well, I guess we do have choices. I mean, besides of course, you know, the big question, of, right. you know, suicide. But like, aside from that, just in terms of living on the planet, like, I mean, what other choice do we have? Like, I mean, you can try to numb yourself, yeah. but that only, that the irony is that, that, that ultimately exacerbates the suffering. It does. It makes it grow rather than diminish. And, and that's the thing. People think, oh, if I take these drugs or if I, uh, you know, just spend all my time with a, uh, virtual reality headset on, you know, it's all going to go away. Yeah. And it's like, no, it's not. It's going to actually, uh, I wish it did. I mean, I've tried it. I know. I've tried yeah. all of them. I've tried everything you can possibly, <laughs> every drug, that's all right. the booze. All the people, the sex, the fucking, the shopping, the food. I mean, I... You're a good resource on this. You oh. can you can, you can can say from experience, it doesn't work. Uh, yeah. Uh, in exactly. the long run. In the long run. It like, doesn't work. Maybe short term. Oh, short term. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, alcohol worked for me for years. <laughs> right. Alcohol and drugs saved my life. Yeah. You know? But until they didn't. Until they didn't. Until they almost killed you. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so you mentioned earlier open marriage. I can't... My listeners, I got to ask, like, you know, like, this is a part of... Um, your life, yes. a big part of your life. I think that 
um, fantasy yes. is a big thing that you um, are into. It's a thing that you struggle with. Is that correct? I do struggle with fantasy a like, lot. How does this factor in? And like, can you talk a little bit about um, the marriage and like the decision to open it and how fantasy factors in and what role like this fantasy um, is it an addiction? Let's call it romantic obsession. Romantic Let's obsession. Let's call it a compulsion, obsession, issues in that area. Is it? Is it issues in the area of fantasy? Okay, so he, here's a question: You get sober. Yeah. You're no longer using alcohol and drugs. Right. You're no longer getting high from those things. Right. Is it a replacement for the loss of that? Well, it, it wasn't right away. That's the thing. I mean, a lot of times you do kind of like substitute things, right? Like you substitute. But, um, so it didn't happen. It wasn't right away, but like I, I opened my relationship, I think like five years. I mean, I've, it's always been a thing, you know, like even when I was drinking and using, it was a thing. Like, I mean, when, in my early twenties, like, you know, I fucked like half of San Francisco, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and, and didn't really enjoy a lot of it, but, um, but some of it was great, but, um, you know, but I think that, um, I'm like, how much do I want to say about this? Um, I think that, so for me, I think it's always been sort of a, like a parallel uh, issue for me. Um, As opposed to being like an outgrowth of like the cessation of one. Right. Like it wasn't like just the, it wasn't like that does happen. People like can replace an addiction. But I think for me, and maybe it did come to more prominence, but I don't think so. Right. Um, I don't think so. I think it's just something that's always been there, you know, too. And, um, you know, as as I stayed as I stayed sober longer, the roads gotten narrower in terms of what I can use to get out of myself. Simply because, like, I think my sensitivity I've gotten more sensitive to like those feelings of withdrawal, and um, so so when I when when my husband and I opened our marriage, this is in the book, um, for a couple of years I didn't act on it because I didn't think like I knew I know what I'm like sort of like kombucha yeah like I know what I'm like and I'm not like it doesn't manifest for me in terms of like stalking like I have way too much pride to stalk like the other person often has no idea like what how much like mental energy devastation anguish obsession is going on for me like um sometimes there is no other person like I, I had an experience for two years where I was like in love with a twitter avatar I mean, I was in love with the, you know, I was in love. I was obsessed with this person, but I would see the person in real life every once in a while. He lived in like, um, totally different state and I would see the person every once in a while and we were just friends. Like I really, you know, if I, if I wanted to hook up with him, I would have like put the moves on him, but I, in real life, I didn't want to, but then this Twitter avatar, it was like, I, you know, I, I fantasized about like that every tweet was for me and it's like. It's this world of fantasy. It's wanting to get high through other people. But the thing is, if you're in a relationship, like a real relationship with someone for a while, um, you can't get really, you can't get high off of them. You can't use a person you're in a real relationship. Well, maybe you can, but like if you're in a healthy relationship actually is what I want to say. If you're in a healthy relationship, like I, I can't use that person to get high. And that's kind of depressing because it's like, wait. I want love to feel like magic and narcotic and like limerence and crushes. And for me, that's what um, I was both wanting and afraid of when I opened my, when, when we opened our marriage. And so for the first two years, I didn't act on it. I mean, I had tons of crushes. The Twitter avatar was during that time. There were 
myriad people from creative writing workshops <laughs> that I, you know, like shout out to high cheekbones. Bro, but, like, um, but then once I did open it, um, you know, I found that what would happen was I would keep getting attached to these fantasies of people, not even necessarily the people. Uh-huh. It was like, I was like attached, like if I didn't get the texts back, you know what I'm saying? It wasn't that I had to see the person every day, but it was like, I wanted that high you get when you get that fucking hot positive text. feedback. Yeah. That hot, that positive feedback that like, also I think in a way that I was describing that when I can obsess about my hair, it's something tangible to a tangible place to put my anxiety. I think that like with romance, it's a very, it's a great place for anxiety to, to live. And that you were talking at the very beginning of the, of the conversation about that feeling of being judged Yes. The feeling of wanting, and, and I think inherent in feeling like you're being judged is the sense of wanting validation. Right. You, you want positive judgment. I want positive judgment. So getting a fill like, the empty holes, baby. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like so, getting a text Which back. Which doesn't or, work. Right. It doesn't last. There's no amount of texts. There's no amount of sex. There's no amount of texts. There's no human being who can like do it for you. Like they can't. Like no, it's it's ladies and gentlemen. I have tried, <laughs> and in my research, <laughs> what I have discovered is that no human being can fill you up. Like, I'm not saying you have to be a whole person when you go into a relationship, because, like, really, like, who's ever a whole person? Like, let's be honest. But what I'm saying is just that, like, you can probably be a half person in a relationship, and, like, that's fine, and you could probably have a really healthy relationship as, like, because I don't know that we ever get fixed, but the other person's not going to be the thing that fixes it. You're going to have to just live as that, like, for me, my experience is that, like, you have to learn to live with that void. Like, no other person's going to be able to fill it. Like, you're going to have the void whether or not you're with another person. Right. Um, and so, because... Well, in, like, in, like, a sexual relationship or something that's, like, really, like, primarily fantasy-based or isn't in, doesn't involve, like, really deep intimacy... Yeah. That's not as sustainable either. I mean, you know, like, there are trade-offs it's that you sad. make. It, it's It's really heartbreaking to me that that sort of limerence period or the crush period or the way you feel about someone when you're long distance and you see them every couple of months or the way you feel about someone when you don't know them at all and you project, like, who you think they are uh-huh. or, like, the fucking, like, guy you fuck, like, five times and, like, that's it and, like, he's always on his best behavior and you're like, oh, this is it. <laughs> it's really sad to me that, like, that doesn't sustain itself in a very long-term relationship. And it, it can't because implicit for me to that excitement is the mystery. Implicit to me, like, it, to the high is the not knowing. And once you're, like, someone's – you're living under the same roof and you're buying toilet paper every day, like, I'm not saying it has to – I mean, I still – I fuck my husband all the time and, and our sex life is actually – I'm like, great. I didn't know I'd be talking about this. I mean, our sex life is better now than it ever has been um, because I feel really comfortable with him. You know, like finally, it, t- it only took me like um, like 12 years of being in a relationship together for us to get it like for me to it's a, relax it's, it's enough always, to have. It's always a work in progress. But it's always a work in progress. But, but like aesthetically, the person you fuck all the time is not going to be as exciting or intoxicating as like – it's just not – it's not possible by – it's inherently built into the nature of a stranger or someone new that like they are gonna, they are a fantasy you can't you can't use the person you're with every day as a drug because it's just like they are reality and that's good that you can't yes. use them as it ultimately good? it's disappointing but it's good yeah i'm still i mean i've i've so um i'm not saying we'll, we will definitely i'm sure open up our marriage again i say to myself but we we became monogamous after like five years of open marriage um and um 
so and and it's been interesting. I mean, it's been really interesting. But um, but so is it sustainable? I, is it sustainable to open a marriage? And I mean, like, is it just? I, I guess like some people can do it. I can't imagine doing it. But like, it can be done. You can open a marriage, stay together. Close it back up again. Open it up again. You don't worry that it's going to do damage. I'm not an advocate for open marriage. I'm not an advocate for monogamy. I'm not on any panels. I'm not like in any sex positive groups. <laughs> I don't wear like a brace, a rubber bracelet that's like ask me about. Like I only know my experience. I don't have any ideas for other people how they should live their lives. Like you want to be monogamous, be monogamous. For me, from my husband and I, like. In our relationship, um, it sort of happened organically. It was really fucking awesome. There were parts that weren't really fucking awesome. Just like the way, same way that monogamy, there's parts that are really awesome. I mean, people cheat all the time. But um, but can it be done? I mean, I think it, we did. But I, I don't think it, it's not, I don't even know what's right for anyone. I don't even know what's, I barely know what's right for myself. Right. I just know that like... Um, this was a solution we saw to the problem of monogamy, you know, and we tried it and I'm so glad that we were able to have this experience. But that being said, you know, um, so every, so I'm so sad today. I tweet a lot about like these experiences that I had in the past, you know, five or six years with being back out there dealing. Oh, it's okay. Cause I like younger men. <laughs> <laughs> hey listeners. But no, but this is the thing though. Is so, that- so sad today was a place for me to put all those experiences, all that disappointment. Cause clearly I, I wasn't I, like, I couldn't have a, I'm not like really poly. Like I don't want like eight different relationships on a spreadsheet with like, you know what I'm saying? Like polyamory. Just Though Excel, so Microsoft Excel does help manage. Yeah. Yeah. Like I just, but you know what I'm saying? Like I'm not out advocating. I don't want to be on any like panels with like, like I just want to like live my life and like right. fuck hot younger guys. And like, <laughs> I kind of want them to text me the next day and like be into me, you know, like that uh-huh. sort of, and like experience that beautiful intoxication through them. Um, the drug. There, there's also something too. I think we've talked about this before. Like, um, you love youth. Oh, I'm obsessed with youth. Obsessed with youth. And like, I, you know, and then, then at the same time, you know, your favorite color is black. Um, you know, like death is something that like you've spent maybe more time thinking about than the average person. Right. There's a lot of darkness. This is my husband's illness. I talk about that in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but I mean, like, you're a poet, you know? Like, you spend yeah, more yeah. time in the darkness than most. But right. yet, at the same time, for all of the troubles that life can bring and all of the struggles that you've gone through, I think there's an aspect of, like, like, there's something in the love of youth that you have that equates in some way to love of life. And that you're... You'd like it to. I'd like it to. I think at its best, that's what it is. You want it to. I've argued that for you. I, I, I don't know. know if you you're believe me. You're always arguing for me to get like the, for the... <laughs> you know what? That may, I mean, there's clearly a part of me that must want to live because I would not be here. Yeah. Like through all the darkness. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, but... um. You can't say it's... You, you can't say it's boring. I've just looked for the light a lot of times in places where that, were, that could kill me is basically uh-huh. the kind of the way I would describe it. And uh-huh. like ultimately, you know, with this romance stuff, like... I think um, it's been a great experience, but like after, you know, one particular, like I just had to kind of, I had to, to not, whether married or not married, I had to not have that experience anymore because the, there was too much, there, there started to be too much pain in it. You know, I wasn't able to keep my feelings under wraps, under wraps. Like I just, I'm not, 
I'm not able to to do that. And so, know? but at least you had the the wherewithal to be like, okay, I'm pulling I'm pulling the plug well, on. I mean, this. as an addict and as someone who's I know myself. You know okay. what I'm saying? It was just a question of how much pain do I want to be in. Uh huh. And um, well, that's the thing too. It's like you know, you can do it. You can open a marriage and then you can do this stuff. But it's like, what? How does it all end? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, at some point, is it a permanent? Right. Go back to monogamy or like you know. But even if I was like single, having this experience with the younger men, like uh-huh. you know all the all the experiences I I recount on so sad today, and all the longing and stuff, um, I think I would have had to change the way I do it. You know, I don't think it really has that much to do with open or closed marriage. Oh, closing the marriage was a way. I think it was a convenient way for me to set a boundary for myself uh-huh. to help me kind of stop chasing youth and the high and. Um, an imaginary, like, I want to have that moment where like you kiss a person for the first time and it's new, but I don't want that moment to end. And the problem with that moment is it always ends. And when it ends or like the next morning, like there's anguish in it. It's implicit, you know, like youth grows up, like kisses end. And so, so I think that like, I was trying to find a way that I could stay in that forever. And whether you're single or married, like what I, what I discovered for myself is that like, I can't like inherent in the inherent to the beauty of it is that it's fleeting. And that is still so sad to me. Yeah. Nothing lasts. I mean, if it did, it probably wouldn't be that good. Right. Well, no, I mean, there's like, there's a good side to impermanence too. You know, if, if, if you weren't impermanent, you couldn't grow. Yeah. I mean, the world would be a, would be an ice cube. If, you know, you know what I'm saying? Right. We need impermanence. Impermanence is great, but then impermanence is also inherently sad. But it doesn't it just it just sometimes still seems. And I, I, I guess I will never get over the fact. And maybe this is what the teens relate to. I will never get over the fact that like, why can't fantasy be reality? Like, I have some sort of like magical thinking where I just always think that like, you can live in a high. The whole like. Like, why can't you? Like, why can't you live there? You know, whether it's, like, that beautiful sex or, like, heroin or, like, why can't you live there, you know? Why does there have to be, like, both sides of the yin-yang? You know, like, it's annoying. (laughs) It's annoying. Yeah. I mean, like, suffering and happiness. Yeah. You You can't have one without the other. If, I mean, if you didn't know bliss then you wouldn't know what suffering was. And right. if you hadn't suffered, then you wouldn't know bliss. Right. So and I think the more I've strived for sort of like bliss outside of myself or like those external highs, you know, the more suffering I've experienced. Like when you're on a more even keel, you know, like the higher you go up, the lower you have to drop. It's just sort of seems to be the case. Right. Yeah. So keep meditating. Hashtag keep meditating. <laughs> Is this something, last question I'm going to ask you. Uh, Is this something that, you have had your entire life or is it something that you uh, really started to feel and experience more with like the onset of adolescence? Like how far back in Melissa Broder's life has sadness and anxiety been um, like really like noticeably present, something that you have really deeply felt? I mean, when I was a little kid, I used to like, before I would cry, I would wind up like I would go (gasps) and pass out. So I've been hyperventilating from a very young age. Okay. Um, but I didn't really start having physical panic attacks till my early 20s, which is when a lot of mental illness, like, services for people. But in terms of the, like, general anxiety and depression, um, I went through, like, a lot of of 
like hypochondria stuff as a, as a young kid, like just always there, like a lot of just kind of terror about my body. And then I went through like some kind of terrors about like, I was, I was convinced that my house was going to definitely catch on fire. Like I knew it was, I had to put a fire ladder in my bedroom and then uh terror about the Holocaust. So yes. <laughs> Brad's favorite topic. He loves my fear of the Holocaust in middle school. He loves that. You have funny stories. I have good stories. You do have good stories. Yeah. Um, well, it's it's always lovely to be with you, and I'm Thanks. I'm very happy. This Me is too. like this is the year of Melissa Broder. No, you, stop it. It is. So Listen, gross. essay collection put out poetry by, book, which poetry I'm so book, proud of. Yeah, which is called Last Sext. Yeah, which is really a lot about what we were just talking about. But yeah, so you've got two books coming out. But not narrative. We're gonna we're gonna sell projects all over town. Oh yeah, we're gonna fucking <laughs> sell some shit. Where are we gonna Where are we gonna sell a show to? I think. Where do you want to sell a show? I'd like to. I mean, ideally, I would love to do something on cable where we can, um, you know, be adults. But yeah. I would take network too. I mean, who you know? I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy. You won't you won't turn your nose down at no. NBC. I'm open to experience. We'll see, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, thank you for coming over. Congratulations on everything, and I know that we'll be seeing each other soon. I know we will probably like in two days. Okay. Okay. Bye. All right, guys. There you have it. That is Melissa Broder. Her essay collection is called "So Sad Today." It's available now from Grand Central Publishing. And uh, actually, you know what? Uh, in honor of So Sad Today, I feel like I should play some sad music. I think that might be more apropos. Hang on one second. Okay, there we go. Are we depressed now? Do we feel suicidal? Melissa Broder, essay collection, So Sad Today. Out there now. And be on the lookout for her uh, new poetry collection later this year. It's called Last Sext. And that one will be published by Tin House. You can find Melissa Broder online at melissabroder.com. You can follow her on Twitter, at SoSadToday. You can also follow her personal account, and the handle for that one is at Melissa Broder. She writes a, a, a weekly column for Vice. I think it's weekly. You can read that. She's everywhere. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for the uh, theme song music. The interstitial music today is... Uh, provided by someone else <laughs> who knows how to play the piano. Don't forget about the Other People app. This music really is sad. I feel like I'm bringing everybody down. The Other People app, it's free. Get it. Sign up for premium. That's not free. Support the show. If you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Tell me a story. Tell me a sad story. So, yeah, uh, Melissa and I, well, like we take a lot of meetings. That's what we do together. That's our social activity. We do meet in coffee shops and we write. And then uh, we also take meetings and we, we drink bottles of water. And then you go in there and you're essentially performing. So we've developed a sort of shtick, which you have to do, or which you do naturally, as an outgrowth of just being in these rooms together. It's kind of a weird uh, truth about writing in uh, Hollywood, is that you have to become a performer, in a sense, in order to go out there and, and uh, hawk your wares. Is that a phrase? Hawk your wares? Sell your wares? Sell your screenplays? You know what I'm talking about. Please remember that Frida Kahlo 
had one of her legs amputated, and that all cats are gray in the dark. That's it for now. Thanks once again to my pal Melissa Broder. Go get her book, So Sad Today, uh, and be on the lookout for Last Sext. Thanks to you guys uh, as well. Thanks to Heidi Pittler and Algonquin. Check out The Daylight Marriage. And uh, I'll be back again soon with another conversation with another person who deals in the narrative arts, who makes stories, who tells stories, who is preoccupied, who is compelled to write.